Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word, the Bible. Uh, we pray that as we look at Mark's gospel this morning, we might understand more of what it means to put our trust, to put our faith in the Lord Jesus. And we ask in his name. Amen. What does it mean for a Christian to have faith? What's this faith thing that Christians talk about? Now, faith or trust or reliance or belief, it's all the same sort of stuff. A lot of people seem to think that faith is it's what you have when you turn your brain off. There's something you can't know, something you can't prove. And so what you do, you shut your eyes and you make a leap of faith. You believe it without evidence. Now, people like that think that there are two ways of knowing things. First of all, there's the rational way of knowing things. That's where you can know it's true by pointing to evidence or, or experiment or something like that. But then there's the religious way of knowing things. That's where you, you don't know if it's true, but you believe it anyway. Or maybe even you know it's not true, but you believe it anyway. Is that what Christians mean when we talk about faith? Is it the point at which we go beyond the evidence or, or against the evidence? Is it the point at which we switch off our brains and take a leap into the dark? Is that the faith that God wants from us? Well, so far in Mark's Gospel, we've, we've seen what Jesus wanted from people, and it did entail faith. It goes all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 15. Jesus said, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near, repent, and believe the good news. Jesus said God is establishing his kingdom, his reign on earth. And he called on people to repent, change their minds, and believe his message. So, so yes, Jesus did call for belief, faith, trust. But Jesus wasn't asking for blind faith. He gave evidence to back up his claims. Jesus claimed that God's kingdom was near... And he gave all kinds of proof, proof that God's kingdom is possible, proof that this world can be transformed into the, the, the world of God's kingdom, that there can be a world without evil or suffering. And, and he gave proof that he himself is the king who can establish God's kingdom and bring people there. And Jesus' proof, apart from teaching this, all of this, his proof was to do miracles, all kinds of miracles, miracles that nearly always have significance from the Old Testament. Let's, uh, let's take the opportunity today to, to think back through Mark's Gospel and we'll see that there's been heaps of proof. Now, chapter 1. Chapter 1, Jesus drove out evil spirits and he healed many people who were sick. Uh, he then healed a man who was unclean with leprosy, touched him. And he showed that he has power over sickness and evil and uncleanness. Now, chapter 2. Remember the man lowered on the mat before Jesus. Jesus said to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And then to prove it, he healed him. Uh, Jesus showed that he has power to forgive sins, to allow sinners into God's sinless kingdom. Chapter 3, do you remember in the synagogue, he heals the man with the withered hand. And then he heals and exorcises more people as well. Uh, chapter 4, do you remember Jesus, he's in a storm and he calms the storm just by speaking. He shows that he has power over the natural world. Shifting into chapter 5, he takes on a legion, an army of demons, and defeats them. Shows that he has power over the supernatural world. 
Uh, chapter 6, there's the, the, the woman with bleeding and, and the little girl who's died. Jesus heals them, raises the girl from death and shows that he has power over, over sickness and death. Uh, chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread. He then, he then walks on water. He, he showed that he, like Moses before him, has God's power to bring Israel into God's kingdom. And then chapter 7. Chapter 7, Jesus is trying to get away from opposition to the Pharisees and Herod. Uh, he's in Gentile territory, but even there he drives out a demon and heals a man who's deaf and mute. Can you see, Jesus has given amazing evidence. These are things that are entirely unique. You don't know anybody who does this kind of stuff, do you? I don't know anybody that does this kind of stuff. This is not the sort of stuff that ordinary people do. This is not the sort of stuff that anybody in history has done. Jesus has done stuff that is unparalleled in the history of the world. Do you see the point? He's calling on people to have faith, to believe him, to rely on him, to, to, to rely on him to bring them into God's kingdom that he says is near. But he's not calling for blind faith. He's giving evidence, evidence that they can see and hear and reflect on particularly reflect on in the light of the Old Testament. But, but not everyone has responded to the evidence in the same way. Jesus has shown us different responses to Jesus. Uh, Mark has shown us different responses to Jesus, uh, different responses to the evidence that he's given. Now, the majority of people in Mark's Gospel, how do they respond to Jesus? Well, they can see that he's very powerful, that he, can, that he can heal and drive out demons. And so they go, great, I'll get his help. There are vast crowds of people like that in Mark's Gospel, aren't there? They come to Jesus for help, but that's pretty much where it ends. They don't reflect on who Jesus is. They don't reflect on what the miracles mean. They don't realise that Jesus is the king who can bring them into God's kingdom. They just get what they need from Jesus and go. There have also been some people who who oppose Jesus. What sorts of people have they been? Well, there are the religious leaders, aren't there? The Pharisees and uh, teachers of the law. They have seen Jesus do all kinds of miracles. He's not been hiding it. He's been in synagogues and places like that. They've seen him do miracles. They've seen him heal people. They've seen him drive out demons. They've seen for themselves that Jesus has unique power. But they haven't accepted him, have they? There's been this problem. The problem is Jesus doesn't fit into their religious box. He, he makes claims that they think he shouldn't make, like claiming to be able to forgive sins. And he does all these things that they think he shouldn't be doing, like hanging around with sinful people, like uh, um, not making his disciples fast, like uh, letting his disciples pick grain on the Sabbath, like, like healing on the Sabbath. He, he doesn't follow the traditions of the elders and make his, uh, his disciples wash their hands. Jesus obviously has power, but he won't do things the way the religious leaders think is right. He challenges their understanding of theology. He challenges their traditions. He even calls them hypocrites. Well, these guys have done a lot of study. They've spent their lives thinking about theology and teaching theology. They've been to the university to, to, to study theology. They, they, they've, they've invested their lives and they've got a lot of authority and, and, and kudos and popularity from their theology. They don't want it challenged. And so the religious leaders say that Jesus, he's obviously powerful, but he must be some kind of an evil power. He must be in league with the devil. They oppose him and some of them 
they've even been plotting to kill him, haven't they? And the religious leaders oppose Jesus. There's also the king in Galilee. We just briefly met him a few weeks ago, King Herod. King Herod, remember, he hears about Jesus, hears about all the miracles that he's doing, and he's scared. He's scared because he already killed John the Baptist. He feels very guilty about that. And so he comes to the conclusion that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Come back to haunt him. You've got these people who oppose Jesus, the religious leaders and Herod. The final response is the response of the disciples. To start off with, they looked great. They see and they hear Jesus, they give up their day jobs and they follow him. And as they follow Jesus, they've seen it all. They've seen all the miracles. They've heard all the teaching. If they don't understand, they get further explanations. Uh, Jesus has even given them power, sent them out on missions, given them power to to heal and and drive out demons, and they've done it. These disciples, they've had amazing opportunity to see the real Jesus, up close and personal, the uncut, non-edited, non-expurgated full story. But still there seems to be a problem. They can't, they can't seem to get who they're dealing with. Back in chapter 4, when they were in the boat in the storm, they were terrified. And Jesus ends up saying this to them. He says, chapter 4, verse 40, he says, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? A couple of chapters later, after they've seen a whole heap more miracles, they see Jesus walking on the water, and again they're terrified. They think he's a ghost. And Mark tells us it's because they're hard-hearted. They can't pick up on the significance of Jesus' miracles. These disciples, they see miracle after miracle after miracle, and yet they can't seem to get used to it. Their hearts are hard. They can't understand who Jesus is. They, they don't yet believe that he has God's power to bring them into God's kingdom. And so every time they see a new miracle, they get this big shock. There's a real sense in which they don't yet have the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for. Well, we're nearly halfway through Mark's gospel and that's where we're at. Jesus has called on people to have faith in him. He's given all kinds of amazing, unparalleled evidence. But the responses have been mixed and nobody really has got it right yet. Well, as we pick up Mark's story, we've just got a bit to finish off really from last week. As we pick up Mark's story, we're still out in Gentile territory. You remember from last week what's happened. Uh, Even though Jesus is out there on a break, he's out there to get away from the opposition of the Pharisees and Herod, he's out there to get away from the the constant press of the crowds, he's out there on a break. But even though he's been out there, he's, he's done a couple of miracles. And he's revealed for us what is an incredibly important truth. We forget how important it is, but it's an incredibly important truth if you think about it. He's revealed for us that it is possible for non-Jews to be saved. Jesus came to save Israel. Salvation is for the Jews. But there are leftovers for the non-Jews. As the Syrian Phoenician woman put it last week, the dogs can eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. Or as I put it last week, doggy bags are available. Well, now in chapter 8, we learn more about these leftovers, these crumbs. Jesus and his disciples, they pretty much finished their break. They're on their way back over to the Jewish side of Lake Galilee. But as Jesus leaves Gentile territory for the, for the last time, last ever time, 
he does one more great miracle. It's a very similar miracle to one that he did for Israel. Again, uh, Jesus is in a remote place. Again, he's surrounded by people, only this time we're dealing probably with mostly Gentile people because we're out in Gentile territory. Again, the people have nothing to eat. Again, uh, Jesus suggests that his disciples feed them. Again, they've got no idea about how it could happen. Even though they've just seen Jesus feed 5,000 people, the idea that he'll do it again just doesn't seem to occur to them. Again, Jesus works a miracle. Verse chap- uh, Mark chapter 8 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Mark chapter 8 and verse 1. During those days, that's the days while Jesus is out in Gentile territory, during those days another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. And and now look this time at how many baskets are left over. Uh, Seven baskets. That's a significant number in the Bible, isn't it? Seven. Seven is um, the number of days in creation. It's a number that's associated with God in many places. It's a number of uh, kind of completion or something. Uh, When Jesus fed Israel in the wilderness, wilderness, do you remember how many baskets were left over? There were 12, weren't there? It was saying that that Jesus is is an ample saviour for all 12 tribes of Israel. He's got plenty to save all 12 tribes of Israel. Well, now we see seven baskets left over for the Gentiles. He is sufficient. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is ample to save everyone. Halfway through verse 8. Afterwards, the disciples picked up, about, picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present. Now, over the last few years, since I've had children, I've put on about 10 kilos in weight. And, and, and a big part of the reason is this. I keep eating my children's leftovers. I hate to see good food go to waste, and so I'll eat what my children leave. leave. The the problem is my children leave so many leftovers that I'm gradually getting fatter and fatter. Really, there's there's no need for me to cook for myself at all. I can just cook for my children, and then if I eat their leftovers, that's all I need. Jesus came to bring salvation to Israel. Gentiles get the leftovers. They get the crumbs from the children's table, the, the crumbs that the children reject. But in this last sign in Gentile territory, we see the great truth. There are plenty of crumbs to go around. The the, the doggy bag is bursting at the seams, so to speak. Uh, Jesus is more than able to save anyone who relies on him. Jew or Gentile, Jesus can bring anyone into God's kingdom. It's great news. It's great news. But as Jesus heads back to Israel and to God's children... The news there is still not good. Jesus has been on the run now from, from Pharisees and, uh, and teachers of the law, but he gets back and absence hasn't made the heart grow fonder. A posse of Pharisees come to him and they demand another sign. 
Now remember our background. The Pharisees have seen plenty of signs. They've seen Jesus heal. They've seen him drive out demons. And they've come to the conclusion that he's evil, that he's doing miracles by the power of Satan. Some of them have started a plot to kill him. These Pharisees are not here on a quest for the truth. They're not asking Jesus for another miracle so they can bow before him as king. They're just looking for ammunition. Well, King Jesus won't have it. He refuses to give another sign to the Pharisees. He gets back into the boat and leaves them behind. Halfway through verse 9. And having sent the crowd away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanatha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. When you see it in light of the background, these Pharisees are implacably opposed to Jesus. It doesn't matter what evidence they see. He doesn't fit into their pre-existing theories. He doesn't match with their vested interests and so they reject and oppose him. Well, now, meanwhile, in their hurry to get away, the disciples forget to bring bread. And Jesus doesn't care about that. He's, he's still distressed about the Pharisees and the response that he's received. And so he says to the disciples, you beware of their yeast. Now, yeast, of course, is stuff that you put in, or in Vegemite, but you put it in bread as well, don't you? And it, it spreads through the bread and it, it changes its, its shape and its, its character. What Jesus is saying is, don't you be like those Pharisees or like Herod as well. He's saying, don't be hard-hearted. Don't ignore the evidence that you see and oppose me implacably like they do. Verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. But as usual... The disciples have no idea what Jesus is talking about. They're working at a whole different level. They think he's grumpy that they forgot bread. Verse 16. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. It's ridiculous. He's just fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. He's just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. How could he conceivably be worried about them forgetting to bring bread? These blokes cannot get it into their thick heads who Jesus is. He does miracle after miracle, and each time they get this big shock. Well, wow, Jesus can do miracles. Never thought about it before. They're like that, um, that caricature of the, the goldfish swimming around in the bowl with one rock. Each time the goldfish swims around, it gets a surprise that the rock is there. Oh, look, a rock. Swims around again. How amazing, a rock. Swims around again. A rock, what's that doing here? These disciples, they are hard-hearted. They are thick-headed. They've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. They've heard month after month after month of teaching, and yet they cannot seem to get who Jesus is. It's no wonder he's warning them about the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. They're not that dissimilar to the Pharisees and Herod. Despite all the evidence, they don't understand who Jesus is. It's almost getting to the point where they won't understand who Jesus is. Well, Jesus, as you can see, as you'll see in a second, he's getting very frazzled at this point. 
But, doing his very best, he talks them through it again. He, he reminds them of the two bread miracles. He reminds them of what he's done. He says, come on, guys, time to open your eyes, open your ears, reflect, remember, think. It's really time you understood who you're dealing with here. It really is time that you believed me. Verse 17. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, uh, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Poor Jesus. How many miracles does he need to do before the disciples will understand who he is? It's like he's knocking his head against a brick wall. He's coming to the end of his tether. And that's where we'll leave it for today. All right, interesting passage, isn't it? <clears throat> interesting passage. Two main parts. Uh, first, the feeding of the 5,000, which really goes with last week. And then uh, Jesus clashes with the Pharisees and the disciples. And the application of the first passage is the same as we saw last week. The feeding of the 4,000, it teaches us that salvation is for everyone, Jew or Gentile. Jesus is able to save everyone who relies on him, who puts their faith in him. And so we ourselves should put our faith in him. We're not beyond the reach of salvation. And we should never withhold the gospel from anyone. No one is beyond the reach of, of the salvation of Jesus. We should spread the gospel to everyone. Uh, but, but I want us to focus today more on the second part of this passage. And the way I want us to think about how it applies to us is to come back to where we started. To ask, what does it mean to have Christian faith? So I hope you can see from this passage that the faith that Jesus wanted was not a blind faith. That's not what he's asking for from his disciples here. Jesus has given them heaps of evidence unparalleled evidence in the history of the world and now he's calling on them open your eyes open your ears remember consider honestly weigh up what you've seen and heard come to your conclusion he uses those words like see and hear and remember and understand he wants them to examine the evidence he wants them to engage their brains understand who he is and trust him he's not saying switch off your brains and believe me He's not saying, leap into the dark. He's not saying, shut your eyes, shut your ears, ignore the evidence. In fact, that's the exact thing he's saying not to do. Shutting your eyes and ignoring the evidence, it's the very thing Jesus does not want his disciples to do. That's what he's warning his disciples about here in Mark chapter 8, against the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. You see, with the Pharisees and Herod, it's not like they're dealing with Jesus rationally. It's not like they're examining the evidence and coming to a fair conclusion. It's the exact opposite. Now take Herod. Herod knows that Jesus does miracles. But in his guilt and in his fear, he opposes Jesus. It's got nothing to do with being rational. It's got nothing to do with going with the evidence. It's all about guilt and fear and maybe a threat to his authority. Or take the Pharisees. 
They've seen all kinds of evidence. Evidence that they should understand from the Old Testament reveals who Jesus is. They've seen him do all kinds of unique miracles, but they refuse to believe him because he doesn't match with their pre-existing theories and traditions, theories in which they've got a vested interest. You see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about the yeast of the Pharisees and the Herod. Uh, Listen carefully to this because this is important. It is not necessarily faith which ignores the evidence. Often it is unbelief that ignores the evidence. With the Pharisees and with Herod, their unbelief is not based on serious consideration of the evidence. It's all about ignorance and prejudice and vested interests. It's the same today. Many opponents of Christianity will tell you that faith is all about ignoring the evidence as if they're being rational and neutral. But you don't have to dig too far to see the truth. You only need to ask a few questions. Ask somebody who tells you, oh yes, faith in Jesus is all about, igno- it's all about uh, ignoring the evidence and believing fairy tales. Ask a very simple question. Oh, what is it about your Bible reading that's led you to that conclusion? The vast majority of the time you'll see they've never even picked up a Bible. They've never even looked at the evidence for themselves. They've never even bothered to examine the evidence. Or maybe if you start to talk to them about their way, the way they're living, you soon see that the real reason they don't want to know about Jesus is because it's a challenge to their immorality. Or else you talk to them and you find they've got all kinds of vested interests in pre-existing theories, maybe family issues or something like that. They don't want to know about evidence which would challenge their theories and, 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 and come up against their vested interests. If you dig a little bit with unbelievers, you'll often find the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. There are people with blind faith. That's true. No doubt about it. There are people who, who blindly believe in Jesus. But can you see... There are also people with blind unbelief. Blindness, ignorance, prejudice, it can go with faith or it can go with unbelief. The thing is what Jesus wants you to do is open your eyes. What Jesus wants you to do is put aside blindness and prejudice and honestly examine the evidence that he's given. Friends, friends, here's how it is. Mark has presented the evidence to us. We've had eight chapters of it now. Eight chapters of eyewitness testimony about Jesus. We need to make our call. We need to ask, what is the best explanation for this evidence? For myself, I've thought long and hard about it. And I think the best explanation of the evidence is that what Mark is saying is true. Jesus is in fact the king in God's kingdom. He can bring me into God's kingdom and so I've put my faith in Jesus. I believe what he says. I'm relying on him to bring me into God's kingdom. That's not a blind leap of faith. I've weighed up the evidence. I've found it convincing. Friends, can I encourage you to do the same? Open your eyes. Think hard about the evidence Mark has given us and put your faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the way that he did things that no one else has ever done. We thank you for the eyewitnesses who saw him do it and who wrote it down for us, even at the cost of their own lives. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we have before us 
more than enough evidence to say that Jesus is the king in your kingdom who can bring us to heaven to be with you forever. We pray for each person who is here this morning that we will honestly examine what we've seen of the Lord Jesus Christ and rely on him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.